Good morning. If you'll open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19. At the end of 2022, when the Lord was working on my heart and starting to lead me to begin to preach through the book of Genesis, uh, you know there's passages like today's that's coming. <laughs> and it makes you like, do I want to preach Genesis? <laughs> but I am convinced, and I hope you are too, that all scripture is inspired by God. And that all of it is profitable for teaching and for correction and for training in righteousness. And today's passage is one of those that can make us extremely uncomfortable, things that we kind of like to avoid. But as we've been going through Genesis, it shouldn't come as a surprise. <laughs> it just shouldn't. I've been showing you throughout the book that there's these patterns and that God is revealing to us his righteousness and our unrighteousness. It started in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were given just this special privileged place in all of creation to live and dwell with the living God. And through the fruit of the ground, they sinned against God, brought shame upon themselves, and a curse to creation. We see God start over. He judges the world with a worldwide flood. And he finds one man who's righteous among all of creation. And he and his family get on that ark, Noah and his family, and they survive that tumultuous event where all of creation dies. And they come off the ark, this brand new start over. Let's do this again. And through the fruit of the ground, Noah gets drunk, brings shame upon himself, and there's a curse upon his grandson Canaan. So should it not be a surprise that here on this more local event, Sodom and Gomorrah has just been destroyed. God has seen their wicked ways, seen how evil they were, but there's one man living among them who he, God considers righteous because of his faith, brings him and his family out, destroys all of it, and now we're going to see today, through the fruit of the ground, there's going to be shame and a curse upon people. This ever-going pattern is showing us that we, humanity, fall far short of the glory of God. And that if we are to be redeemed and brought back into relationship with Him, it's going to have to be God who does it. Because even the most righteous among all of humanity always fail. They always fail. It's a vicious pattern that's only going to be remedied by the righteous one. The son of the living God. Jesus our Lord. And as I'm reading through Genesis and studying through it, it seems like Solomon had it right. What has been done is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. And though we read these words and we can think, oh, I, I, I may be in denial. I don't want to think humanity is that bad. Oh, we underestimate the power of sin. But I pray that in all this we won't underestimate the power of a loving God who can redeem us from the power and the presence of sin. So 
So if you'll follow along with me, Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 30. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we lower our eyes in honor and fear of you. You are the Almighty God, the one and the only the one who inhabits eternity, the one by whose words hold all power. And Father, I acknowledge this morning that these people don't need my opinion, they don't need my words, they need you. So will you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Will you teach us, grant to us understanding and wisdom that we may believe you, that we may believe your words, that this is true, Father, help us in our weakness that we may be strong in spirit. Will you feed us this morning for we are hungry, hungry for your word, hungry for you, hungry for eternal things, something that will calm the angst in our souls and our hearts. Lord, we know that it is you that says, come to me and I will give you rest. So Father, I stand here among your people and I say it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Give us what we need today to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw last week Lot and his daughters and his wife all escaped Sodom. We spent the last two weeks seeing the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and the grace of God to even have a family escape from all of that and, and the dangers of living in sin and having our hearts loyalty to the world's systems and not for the Lord. And, and, and now he, he was supposed to bring his family into the mountains. Remember that? God said, Lot, get your family and go to the hills Get out of town. Get out of the cities. Uh, I'm going to bring fire from heaven and destroy them. And, and Lot said, God, I, I'm too old to get to the mountains. Can we go to this little town called Zoar? Would you, would you give me that? And God says, that's, that's fine. You can go to Zoar. But it says here, as we start today's passage, that over some amount of time, we don't know how long, 
something in Lot kind of started building up, this fear of living in Zoar. And there's a lot of speculation. I'll give you mine. <laughs> I think he went into Zoar and he made a home there for maybe not very long, but he saw in Zoar the sins of Sodom. I think he saw there that this town was actually supposed to be destroyed with all the others. And that these people were just like the people he had just left. And I've tried to sit and I can't. I can't put myself in the place of Lot and his daughters. The amount of trauma and the amount of fear and, and what a horrific event to even watch his wife die on the way. And he is wondering, or he knows at least, Zoar is worthy of the same destruction as Sodom. And he comes to this conclusion, it is not safe for me to be here. At any time, I'm wondering, I wonder if he's thinking, at any time, God could just toast this place too. <laughs> Anytime. Because they deserve it. And maybe he tried to go in like he did with Sodom and become a judge and, and maybe become a righteous influence. And, and he's just seeing that this is not the place I want my family to be. And God had originally told me to get to the hills. Maybe I should do what God says. Church, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> we should do what God says. And so, for whatever reason it might be, he is fearful of living in this town and he finally takes his daughters and does what God originally intended and takes them into the mountains where he believes, hopefully at least, he'll be safe. Well, there's no town out there, so they have to reside in a cave. And the Bible only gives us two days, two days and nights of that life in the cave together. And they're horrific to read. And to understand more, though, and, and again, I'm not justifying anything. There's, there's no justification for what the daughters of Lot did. But maybe we can understand a little more if you start to put yourself in their place. You see, it wasn't just Sodom that was destroyed. It wasn't just Gomorrah that was destroyed. God said it was every city and village and town, even the dust of the earth all of it was going to be destroyed because of the great sins that had come before him in those cities. Their soon-to-be husbands were left behind, and they died. And in their minds, there's no one left. There's, there's no one. Everyone they know, they were born and raised in Sodom. Everyone they know, from their city to the neighboring towns, to as far as their eyes can see are gone, absolutely gone. And the horrific impact of grief that they're going through, having just lost their mother and their husbands, and now they're living in a cave. The fear that is in them, having just witnessed what they've just witnessed, the, the mortal and finite psyche of a human I don't think can bear the load of that kind of shock. Again, no justification. I just want us to try to understand it. Just try to understand it. The stress of this situation is beyond them. 
right? The whole thing is beyond their ability to deal with it. So what they plan to do is totally wrong, but to them, but to them, there was no other way. This was the only solution they could come up with. If they didn't do something, because Lot was old, it says, and he, in all of their reasoning, is probably the only man left. They don't know. Okay, they don't know what happened beyond the borders that they could see. But to them, Lot's the last one. And they think, if we're going to have offspring, if we're going to continue the line of our family, maybe even in their thoughts, the line of all of humanity, we need to do something quick. And so they take to human reasoning, and they come up with their own solution. This plan seemed like to them the only solution. I don't even think they were very excited about it. Okay? I really think this even went beyond their own conscience. But what else are they going to do? Right? What else are they going to do in their minds? They're pressed to make a quick decision. May we understand that this sort of action, any sort of time we sin, even if we think it's justified, it is not. Sin is sin before the living God. This sort of relationship that they had with their father in that cave was against their own conscience. I really believe it was. Uh, but it's certainly against the heart of God. All right? We see when it comes to Moses and the law, and God gives to the people his righteousness. You know, I'm reading this, and I'm like, do you know, you, we all know why there's laws, right? There's laws because we broke <laughs> them. You know, the, the reason there's a list of rules in a classroom is because kids were doing those things, right? That's why I'm like, man, that some things God had to write down for us. <laughs> like this. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. This is the law of heaven. This is righteousness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother, and you shall not uncover her nakedness. That passage didn't stop there. There was lots of verses after, giving all these other relationships that are prohibited by God. Again, we also know that they, I, I really believe they knew it was wrong, right? They were just doing the only thing they could think. They knew it was wrong. Why? They had to get dad drunk first. Because I really believe Lot would never have approved of this. Lot would have never said yes to this. So they had to get him in an inebriated state so that he wouldn't know. That's how we also know that this is wrong, So they go forward with it, and they both become pregnant. The first one, it says, has a son, and his name is Moab. That last part, Ab, is, comes from Abba, which is father. So Moab literally means from my father. The youngest had an, a son as well. His name was Ben-Ami, which means from or the son of my people. The son of my people. But listen, even when we think this is going to work, 
Even when we use our own human and reason, we sit down and we uh, look over a situation, we go, I, you know, apart from prayer and apart from seeking God and apart from godly and biblical counsel, if we're just going to use our own natural reasonings and knowledge, there are consequences, isn't there? There's always consequences. In the theme of redemption, which is what we're talking about here, we talk about the beginning of redemption, now we're talking about a covenant of redemption, God redeeming a people for himself, this is a passage that we really read fast over, and we don't go back. But if we spend some time here, which we are, and maybe uncomfortably, there's so much theological truth here. And I'm afraid we'd miss it if we went too fast. And the theological part that we really want to see starts with the two people groups that came from this relationship. He specifically points out that these are the Moabites and these are the Ammonites. Moses wrote this, of course, thousands of years or hundreds of years at least later um, for a people who knew who these people groups were. They knew who the Moabites were and they knew who the Ammonites were. They were actually very recent history. <laughs> we're going to see that. They had just came across their path. And so now reading it goes, oh, now we know where they came from. And the history and the truth of the Moabites and the Ammonites are going to show us the consequences of sin. But I hope we also see it's also going to show us the wondrous grace of God. <laughs> that he is a good God to sinful people. I can't go to the, all the passages that talk about Moabites and Ammonites. Maybe it's a study that you'd like to take upon yourself. But we're going to go to a few, but we're going to see this, that these two nations, these two people groups, are going to become perpetual enemies of Israel. They're going to be enemies forever with the people of God. When Israel is delivered out of Egypt, right? They're in Egypt and, and they're slaves there, and God rescues them out. He takes them out, brings them into the wilderness. They're a very vulnerable people, right? They, they're, they're, they're all ex-slaves. They're not soldiers. They're not rulers. They're, they're just a bunch of slaves who are now thrust into the wilderness and, and having to survive and trust God by doing it. And uh, they went to battle with the Amorites, these Amorite people. Not, not any of these, but the Amorites come and battle them in the, in the wilderness, and God miraculously gives them the strength and the ability to defeat the Amorites. This wakes up all the other nations in the area. <laughs> they go, who are these Israelite people? Or who are these Hebrews, they would call them? Who are these Hebrews? They just defeated the Amorites. The Moabites took notice, and the Ammonites took notice. <laughs> and so what happens? There's a Moabite king named Balak. And he goes, I don't like these Hebrews. They, they have a blessing from their God that's way more powerful than we thought. So I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go hire a prophet. And I'm going to have him curse those people so that they can't win any more battles. I, I, he's afraid of them. We're going to do this so that they will not be able to defeat us. And Moses reminds them of this because remember that's Balaam. And, and Balaam goes out more than once, three times, to go out to curse the people of God. And what happens every time? God doesn't let him. And what comes out, was supposed to come out as a curse, comes out as a blessing. And he just keeps blessing Israel and blessing them and blessing them. And Balaam's like, uh, that's not what I'm paying you for. <laughs> You're doing a terrible job. 
Here's what Moses says. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. It's all because of this, okay? All because of that event. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. Why? Because he loves you. <laughs> because he loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So it's now written in the law of Moses <laughs> that these two people groups coming from Lot's line with his daughters are now, remember as I said, the pattern of Genesis, there's blessing, there's God uh, uh, showing kindness to people, rescuing them, creating them, and then by the fruit of the ground, they sin against God, and there's shame, which certainly, can we just say that, that's most, one of the most shameful passages I just had to read aloud, and a curse. And now we see it. It didn't come immediately, but the Moabites and the Ammonites become cursed under God. The sons of Lot are perpetually cursed because of their hatred of the Hebrew people. You go, well, what's so big deal about that? Do you remember the covenant of Abraham? What he said? Those who curse you will be cursed. God takes personally how we deal with the people of God. How we deal with the church is how God sees how you're dealing with him. And he says, those who bless you will be blessed, and those who curse you will be cursed. And these two, which we see the Ammonites were now in tandem with the Moabites, with the whole Balaam thing, they are now no longer able to enter the people of God. They are cut off. They're not able to enter your assembly, he says. All the nations were welcome to come and become Jews, right? They were welcome. You, you take on the sign of our covenant, you, you go through all these cleansings, and you, you declare with your mouth that our God is the only true God, and, and you're welcome in. It's called a proselyte. Not the Moabites, not the Ammonites. These two nations are singled out from all the rest as never to be able to to enter the people of God. Did you know that right after that in Deuteronomy, you know where it said they were not able to enter to the 10th generation, the 10 means wholeness, like all these generations. The next verses talked about Egypt. Now Egypt's pretty bad, right? I mean, they're the ones that enslaved you. They're only cursed for three generations. <laughs> these two, these two nations are pinpointed out by God that they will never enter blessing. They're abhorred. They're throughout the wilderness wanderings, the book of Judges, the book of the Samuel, the book of the Kings, even all the way to the end, the book of Nehemiah, which is not the end of our Old Testament, but it's the end of the Old Testament story. Even in Nehemiah, we're seeing the Moabites and the Ammonites constantly at war and constantly against the Jewish people. It never ended. The sins of these two young ladies bore such long-term horrific consequences and what they were doing was what they thought best in their heart. Look at 1 Kings 11.1. 1. Here's just an example. Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, 
and because they hired Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor, Mesopotamia, to curse you from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. So that's even in the kings. This is centuries later. This is generations later. They're still talking about it. And then in Nehemiah, right, the very last book of the narration of the Old Testament. This is them coming back out of, uh, uh, from, from, from out of Persia, and they're, they're allowed to build the wall of Jerusalem again. After it's been destroyed by Babylon, they're now able to start building Jerusalem again. Who comes out? Not everyone's too excited the Jews are coming back. <laughs> Not everyone's excited that Jerusalem is going to get rebuilt, especially the enemies of Jerusalem. But when Sandalot the Horonite, just means he was from a city called Horon, and Tobiah, surprise, surprise, the Ammonite. They heard this and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Generations later, the Ammonites still hate Israel. The sins of these women, thinking they were doing what was best. In fact, they were thinking it was the only thing they could do. It was their only choice. That is in their human reasoning. They thought, this is, if we're going to have any sort of children, there's going to be any sort of prolonging of offspring after God has just wiped out everyone. Who knows even what their thoughts about God were at that time. This is what we're going to have to do. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we just see this constant war because of it. Moab and Ammon are no more. All right? They're no more. We don't read about the Moabites at all after the destruction of Babylon. After Babylon came and wiped out all these nations and became this worldwide empire, you don't read about the Moabites anymore. The Ammonites do survive, we think. We see some of their pottery and stuff. We see some evidence that they might have been surviving even through the empire of Persia. But after that, they disappeared in history too. They disappeared. But you know who's still out there? Israel. Israel's still there. How do they survive and they don't? Because God said. Because God said. Now that's heavy stuff. I get it. But I want to turn a little bit and see, yes, God is just and God is righteous and he has a hatred towards sin and evil, but he is so gracious. Even to Moab and Ammon. And we're going to see that. There's a couple glimpses in the Old Testament where God was good to these people, though they didn't deserve it. He was kind to them, though they deserved death and destruction. The first time we see it is right in the beginning. Moses' end of his life, he's giving the law for the second time to the second generation, Deuteronomy. That's what that book is. And he says this, because they're about to go into the land and take the land, the promised land. He says, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with him in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession." Isn't that interesting? That though Moab was an enemy of God for the sake of Lot, he says, I'm giving them land and it's theirs. 
Don't mess with them. A few verses later, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. What kindness of God <laughs> that they would have land. They would have their own kingdom. <laughs> Even if it was just for a short time, they did. Because the father was a righteous man. And for the sake of Lot, he was kind to the offspring. Second Samuel, we see a whole list. Second Samuel 23 is this whole list of, of, of David, who's King David. King David of Israel. He has this group of men called the mighty men of David. And these are his men that he calls on to do great things. Go and do these great strengths and, and defeats people. And, 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 and he calls on them. These were, these were his many, manly men, the soldiers, right? And he has them from all over. He says, Zelik the Ammonite was one of them. It was an Ammonite. One of David's mighty men. And then if you read it in First Chronicles, it adds there's also Ithma the Moabite in David's service. So we have two men called out from these cursed nations to work for David, to serve David, and to do great things for the nation of Israel. That's God's mercy. That's God's kindness. But even those two things, the land and the mighty men, those don't even close to add up to the kindness that he showed to the Moabites when we get to the book of Ruth, <laughs> right? The book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Probably shouldn't have done that, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's some things going on there that, you know, that God probably wasn't too pleased with. He and his wife and his two sons. So we have a Jewish man now going to go live in the nation of Moab <laughs> because it seems better there because of a famine. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Does that sound familiar? Small town of Bethlehem of Ephrathah. There's going to be a ruler born in you. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives, also probably not a good choice, but God Bless this. <laughs> they weren't supposed to marry Moabites, were they? But they did. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left with her two sons and husband, without her two sons and husband. So now you have the mother-in-law and the two daughter-in-laws. And if you know the story, she tells them, go back to your people. <laughs> I can't take care of you. Go back to your homes, and Orpah does. She goes back to live with her parents or relatives. But Ruth stands next to her and says, No, your God is my God. I am with you. And so later on, after they go back to Israel, they go back to Bethlehem. So Boaz took Ruth, this kinsman redeemer, took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him 
Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We have these people groups born under such awful circumstances. Cursed people because they hated the Hebrews. And yet God, in his infinite mercy and grace, chose a Moabite woman to not only live in Israel and be blessed there, but to become a mother of King David, who of course leads to Jesus Christ. You have a Moabite woman in the genealogy of Jesus. And that leads us to our end and our application. We think, okay, these people were cursed. They deserve to be cursed. We saw before Canaan was cursed. He deserves to be cursed. You know, all these cursings. And, And again, a curse is simply living under the wrath of God. It's the opposite of blessing. That God is angry with our sin, and yet we see the heart of compassion he has for the lost people. That whose hearts are not for him who are not walking in his ways, and he loves them, and he, and he pursues them, and we see a redemptive uh, example that this Moabite woman, deserving to be cursed under God, becomes one of the greatest women of Scripture. Why? Because she's anybody? No. Because God is good. And he is the one who lifts our curse. He's the only answer to our curse. So first application is this. we got to believe this natural, that means not spiritual, apart from God, natural knowledge and wisdom lead to death. Though it seemed right in the daughter's eyes to do what they were doing, it wasn't. And it led to death upon death upon death and curse upon curse. And here's the verse that I picked the sermon title from. It says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. To the daughters of Lot, this seemed like the only way. It it seemed what was right. And yet, we know it wasn't. It was a sin against God. It brought horrific consequences in the world. But our God is bigger than that, is he not? Because Jesus Christ came to redeem us from the curse that we're under because of our disobedience to the Lord. The wrath of God that's upon us. It says in Galatians, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. We try to do what's right. We try to impress God and we don't. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified or declared righteous, right? Made right before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. It's by faith alone. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ, here it is, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us, it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, see it's connected to Genesis, might come to the Gentiles, that means all the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Isn't that incredible? We think, oh, what a wonderful God that he would be so merciful to Ruth and the Moabites and have the Moabite name live on through her in the genealogy of Jesus. But nothing compares 
when we look at a cross. And the Son of God, the one who created all things, the one who dwells in unapproachable light like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the one who is the end and the beginning, the one whose word is power, the one who holds the rod of iron, who's going to judge the nations. He himself became the curse that we were living under as he died on a tree and, and absorbed for us the wrath of God. That we might be blessed. And what happens when we come to Christ? Well, our family changes. <laughs> Ruth is no longer known as a Moabite. She's known as a grandmother of David. <laughs> Look at us. God adopted us into his family to walk in the way of our heavenly father. He is a God who still takes people out of their sinful lineages and he breaks generational curses, and he breaks the power of sin that has reigned over families, and he takes people out, and he transforms them, and he makes them new, and he brings them into his family of righteousness, and now says, live for your father. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil that we were living in, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, talking about offspring, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Church, there is a lot to be said in this passage, isn't there? of sin and curse and redemption and mercy and grace. And we can read this and go, man, those two ladies are messed up. <laughs> but so are we. <laughs> There's no greater sin in the eyes of God than any other. So are we. And it is just as big of a miracle that we can be redeemed and saved in the name of Christ than they could. If it wasn't for Jesus on the cross, we'd be good as a Moabite. We'd be as dead as an Ammonite. We would have no hope, no future, and just like them, we would disappear in history and be known no more. And yet, we have a God who knows our name, resurrects us from the dead, gives us eternal purpose, gives us his power in his spirit, and gives us his kingdom to reign in with him forever and ever. Because he is generous and kind. And he loves his people. But as the book of Galatians says, may we not forget that it is by faith alone that we enter into that covenant with God. That our sins can be forgiven. So if you'll bow your heads with me. If you have not cried out to the Lord Jesus to save you from your sin, bring you out from that curse and into the blessing that is in Christ alone, Use this time to do so. Confess your sin to God. Believe that the Lord Jesus, both God and man, died for you, and that it's through Him alone that we can be forgiven. For those who've done that already, spend this time blessing His name honoring him, adoring him. Because we didn't deserve this. 
Jesus didn't deserve that. But in his love, he did it for us. Our Father, you are the one who is greater than sin. It overpowers us. It rules us. Like Egypt, like Babylon, we're like slaves to them. But you are a God who rescues. You are a God who redeems. You are a God who strengthens and keeps his people until you return for us and make your kingdom a fullness of reality. Oh, we long for that day when sin will be no more. Wickedness will be eliminated. The devil will be gone. And we will be renewed. New new bodies without sin. New minds uncorrupted. Oh, Father, thank you for that future for us. And Lord, we thank you for today's passage. We thank you. You didn't hide anything from us. You didn't water it down. You showed us the trueness of everything, the reality of what it is. But in it, we see your glory, your brilliance, your righteousness, and your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen.